Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Allergy Talk, a roundup of the latest in the field of allergy and immunology by the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. For today's episode, we will be reviewing three more articles from the January-February 2021 issue of Allergy Watch, a bi-monthly publication which provides research summaries to college members from the major journals in allergy and immunology. You can also earn CME credit by listening to this podcast. For information about credit or to read archived issues of Allergy Watch, head over to our website at college.acaai.org slash publications slash Allergy Watch. And finally, we'll also make a post on the ACAAI community on Doc Matter, where we can continue this discussion and hear your opinions on the articles we discussed today. So hello, everyone. My name is Jerry Lee. I'm an associate professor and the program director of the Algae Fellowship at Emory University. And I'm joined by my two co-hosts. First, Dr. Stan Feynman. Hello, everybody. It's good to be here. I'm a clinical faculty at Emory in practice at Atlanta Allergy and Asthma. And I'm currently editor-in-chief of Allergy Watch. And our third guest or co-host is Dr. Marilyn Curavilla. Hi, this is Marin Kurovilla, and I'm an assistant professor of allergy and immunology at Emory University. Well, we finally made it to 2021. So we're really excited to start the new year fresh with some very interesting research that's come out in the past year. So I think, Stan, you're going to tell us a little bit about how to approach potentially asthma, COPD overlap syndrome, or smoking asthmatics. Yes, I decided to pick this article that was reviewed by Dr. Josie in the Allergy Watch. It's entitled Randomized Controlled Trial of Triple versus Dual Inhaler Therapy on Small Airways and Smoking Asthmatics. And it's from Brian Libwerk's lab. He's in Scotland and does a lot of work in asthma. And it was published in Clinical Experimental Allergy last year. In fact, it was in the October issue. So basically what you know, we all know, of course, that if you have somebody with asthma who is smoking, we try to get them to stop. But what he decided to do was to see if adding a, a cholinergic antagonist gave any improvement to using a LABA and inhaled steroid combo together. So, you know, we do know that asthmatics who smoke do pose other clinical challenges, and they may even be like a separate phenotype. And we do know that COPD and smoking is, of course, associated with small airway dysfunction and worsening of asthma control if they do have asthma. And now triple therapy, which is adding a long-acting muscarinic antagonist, a LAMA, as we call it, to the long-acting beta agonist, which is the LABA, and the inhaled steroid, it's now a current recommended treatment for COPD. So this was a controlled, this was a randomized trial that was a crossover study, and it was not a very large trial, but it looked at the evaluation of the effects of the triple versus the dual inhaler therapy, and they looked at smaller airways. And they just used 16 current smokers who were diagnosed with persistent asthma. They did not have COPD. And they started out on just an inhaled steroid. So they started out with what they called a reference inhaled steroid. And they used beclomethasone, which was a product called Selen Modulate, which we don't have here. It's in England. And they also used with a special inhaler device, the Respimat, which is, of course, a way of giving a very a softer type inhalation. 
And the dose, of course, was two puffs twice a day, a total of 800 micrograms. And that's what they did initially as a run-in for, you know, for treatment. So after about three weeks of that, then they gave him either the inhaled steroid plus the long-acting bronchodilator or the inhaled steroid with long-acting bronchodilator and a llama. And then what they did is they looked at impulse oscillometry to perform, to, to assess the small airway dysfunction, you know, with each of the treatment. They did it before, they did it after a period of time with the three weeks of the randomization. Then they did a washout where they used the inhaled steroid alone again, and they crossed over. In other words, they switched therapies. So each, you know, patient was sort of their own control. And the impulse oscillometry was performed to assess the smaller airway dysfunction. And I'm not sure how familiar everybody is with impulse oscillometry. In fact, I'm not very familiar because we don't do it. But a variety of things, including impedance, resistance, reactance, resident frequency, area of reactance, coherence. And basically, it's a good way of assessing resistance and in smaller airways and in larger airways as well. And so that's what these researchers were doing is to look for that. So the R is the resistance, okay? So except for that, the isolometry outcomes, you know, at the trough were significantly improved when they used the inhaled steroid, long-acting bronchodilator, and LAMA, the, the triple treatment, versus the dual treatment, the inhaled steroid and the long-acting bronchodilator alone. There were some differences, and I don't really want to go through the numbers here, but the bottom line that in the asthmatic patients who smoke, the triple therapy that's, you know, with the llama and the inhaled steroid, improve your trough, small airway outcomes compared to dual therapy. And, you know, obviously we don't know about the long-term effects with this, but the reason they use the oscillometry is they could, they felt that they could get a better determination of the airway, a smaller airway of activity versus our FEFE1 and certainly FEF2575, which began to show some significance there. And so the interesting thing I thought was when Dr. Josie's comment was that asthma control was no different, although there was some trending improvement when they added the triple therapy, when they look at the smaller airway. And of course, he commented and said, smoking sensation should remain the highest priority, but triple therapy should also be strongly considered in asthmatic patients who smoke when they have refractory disease. You know, it's so interesting that this is particularly showing the benefit in the small airways, which, I mean, in training, you know, small airways was kind of drilled into my head as being very important. You know, they sort of pitched the, a small particle size inhaler as sort of your strategy when you see that pattern. But I always haven't seen much about small airways recently. And making that connection to that breathing test and how patients are doing. So I'm not sure how often you stand or you, Marin, look at FEF 2575. How important is that to you? Have you fixed someone when you went chased and I, and chasing it anyways? Like, you know, I personally, I guess not paying attention as much as I used to, maybe because I don't really have you know, sometimes I don't have like a small particle size inhaler around like I used to, or at least as emphasized, or I just haven't fully materialized who actually benefits and so on. So I'd love to get your thoughts on this small wear effect and what you've seen in your experience going after it. So while Stan was talking, I was just wondering whether 
I was the only person who actually routinely monitors the FEF 2575. Because like you said, I think the reason we've just sort of lost that focus on small airway dysfunction is because we don't routinely perform impulse oscillometry. But just from what I have seen, I do notice that it is a little more sensitive than what the literature would suggest. So I do tend to monitor it. So wasn't there a report not long ago about in children using a ratio of FEV1 to FEF2575? Do you recall that? I don't recall it, but certainly I've definitely worked with many pediatric pulmonologists who definitely are very interested in the small airway and find it very concerning when it, you know, you're getting pretty low levels. Obviously, the variability of that measure is all over the place. I mean, they're talking about stuff like 60% or less or so on. But, you know, like stepping up medicine to that sort of thing, I guess, is that sort of been the approach that you've been taking, Marin? Well, I don't use it as an indicator to change treatment per se, but just as an adjunct to how sort of people are doing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the way we would use it as well, kind of as an adjunct, you know, but you have to put it, you know, in the picture of the whole clinical picture. Right. I mean, an isolated decrease in the FEF 2575 in a completely inappropriate clinical context probably would not mean much. Right. So this brings up another thing I just think was so interesting. This, you know, this article raises the point that some of the disappointing studies coming out of the addition of long-acting muscular antagonists is a heterogeneity issue. And again, suggesting that the COPD, you know, concurrent with asthma phenotype where llamas have a good track record might be the phenotype of asthma to go after this. But just in general, I was just surprised because maybe I was just being, again, ignorant about how llamas didn't show it, like improvement in exacerbations. And so they had that lukewarm recommendation from the asthma guidelines. And so I was sort of surprised by that because, you know, we added on, but I guess I really have to think about when I'm adding on LAMA to someone's already failed ICS LAMA, at least when I read the asthma guidelines, they're suggesting, well, what are you trying to accomplish? You might be helping their asthma control or quality of life, but you may not be preventing a steroid burst, unless I'm not treating the right phenotype. That's obviously another thing to consider. I do think there is a role for the addition of LAMA. I don't know if either of you had a chance to read the CAPTAIN data that was published in Lancet sometime last year, looking at trilogy in non-type 2 asthmatics. And there was no decrease in exacerbations, but it did improve lung function and it did just improve like asthma symptoms, quality of life. So for people who do have day-to-day impairment in their asthma symptoms, and especially in non-type 2, where there really isn't anything to add on per se, I would consider adding on a llama. I think you're right. And, you know, traditionally, the muscarinic antagonists help bronchodilatation, but, you know, we don't have a lot of data, as Jerry said, about quality of life and outcome measures. And, you know, and again, we're just learning more about these new tools. And so, again, I looked forward to seeing whether we can hit more clinically relevant outcomes like symptoms or exacerbations as we understand this further. Because again, if we're improving their small airways function, if the patient doesn't feel anything, they're probably not (laughs) going to be thrilled with it, I guess, overall in the bottom line. So obviously we need to do more research. Marin, you picked a really interesting article about something we think we're helping our patients, but maybe we should take a pause about some of the, what we're trying to accomplish with some of these biologics. Right. So I 
picked a paper that looks at the prevalence as well as predictors of non-responsiveness and even potentially worsening of asthma in patients treated with anti-ESNFL or anti-IL-5 agents in a real-life setting. And I'm sure we've all had those patients with severe eosinophilic asthma who do not respond to anti-ESNFL agents, even when used in the correct setting. So this paper was published in the European Respiratory Journal last year and reviewed by Bradley Chips for Allergy Watch. It was a study out of Canada from the same group who previously described a putative autoimmune phenotype in severe eosinophilic asthma. So what they found was that in up to a third of severe eosinophilic asthmatic patients, pathogenic autoantibodies that were directed against eosinophilic cellular components were found in the sputum and may be linked to pathogenesis of asthma. So their hypothesis going into the study was that these airway autoimmune mechanisms may interfere with biologic effects. So they looked at a cohort of 250 patients with moderate to severe asthma who were treated with mepolizumab or reslizumab. And notably, more than half the cohort were steroid dependent, despite which the mean pretreatment bloody sniffle count was greater than 500. They also looked at matched pre- and post-treatment sputum for molecular analysis in a subset of 39 patients. They defined patients as suboptimal responders if there was failure to wean maintenance steroids, reduce the ACQ, reduce exacerbations, and if blood or sputum eosinophils persisted. And then some patients were even noted to worsen on treatment, and this was defined based on worsening lung function and increased ACQ. So what they found was a total of 62 of 119 or of more than 50% response, not, or rather a non-response rate to mepolizumab, and a 41% non-response rate to resolizumab. And both the use of daily prednisone as well as the dose of prednisone were independent clinical predictors for suboptimal response to anti-IL-5 agents, as well as the presence of sinus disease, although the authors did not differentiate by the presence or absence of nasal polyps, they did state that late-onset asthmatics with sinusitis were less likely to respond to anti-eosinophil agents, so maybe they were referring to the asthma with polyp phenotype. 141 subjects were steroid-dependent, and subgroup analysis showed a 28-fold increase in the risk of suboptimal response if the patient had adult-onset asthma, and a 12-fold increase with evidence of concomitant sinus disease. Another interesting fact was that while post-treatment blood eosinophils were increased in only 8% of suboptimal responders, most of these patients who suboptimally responded and who had available sputum data showed persistently increased sputum eosinophils, indicating that despite suppression or normalization of blood eosinophils, their airway eosinophilia continued to be unsuppressed. And then they also looked at other inflammatory markers in the sputum of patients who underwent molecular analysis, and an increase in sputum IL-5 was noted in the mepolizumab suboptimal responders following treatment, indicating 
that this antigen may just be inadequately neutralized and underdosing may be responsible for the suboptimal response. They also looked at evidence of autoimmune phenomena in the airways of these patients and an elevated IgG autoimmune antibody against eosinophil peroxidase was demonstrated in the airways of suboptimal responders to mepolizumab. And there was a significant positive correlation between the levels of eosinophil peroxidase and anti-eosinophil peroxidase IgG, suggesting an ongoing autoimmune response that may sustain eosinophilic activity. And in fact, anti-eosinophil peroxidase IgG was the only molecular factor that was predictive of non-responsiveness to anti-IL-5 monoclonal antibodies. The others concluded by stating that clinicians should be mindful of the possibility of non-responsiveness or even worsening of asthma when prescribing mepolizumab to asthmatics who are number one, prednisone dependent, number two, with a late onset asthma diagnosis, especially number three, with concomitant sinusitis, perhaps nasal polyps, and may likely have a higher burden of airway IL-5. And inadequate dosing may be one of the reasons that asthma could be worsened due to an autoimmune phenomenon triggered by low drug doses in the airways with the formation of immune complexes with endogenous autoantibodies and activating complement. You know, this has come up over and over again where we are concerned about that one dose fits all dosing for mepolizumab. But it's interesting, you're saying they found the same thing for reslizumab too, which has an empty per kg dosing? To a lesser extent. And there were actually much fewer patients on reslizumab in the study. So molecular analysis was only performed for very few patients, too few to make meaningful conclusions from. But overall, the rates of non-responsiveness were lower for reslizumab than for mepolizumab. Uh, so you wonder if these sort of particular patients you're talking about, late onset, upper and lower respiratory, maybe they do need higher dosing. I mean, you know, that's just something someone would have to figure out, but that's interesting. But again, the other thing that blows your mind is like this emerging biomarker of antibodies against our own eosinophils. And does anyone have any idea what, like how we get that and what does that mean? I mean, we have this biomarker, but like, <laughs> it's just surprising. Right. I mean, and, and like I said in the beginning, like the same group, as far as I know, are the only ones who've previously described this putative autoimmune phenomenon. And this was actually published in Jackie a few years ago, and it was part of our CAP block a couple of years ago as well. I was going to ask you a question about the fact that the eosinophil count, they didn't feel like it was a good marker. I mean, I know this is a very sophisticated marker looking at antibodies, but sometimes we have follow, you know, at least eosinophil count. Does this mean we shouldn't be checking that? It would indicate that there is a discrepancy between suppression of blood eosinophils and sputum eosinophils, and suppression of blood eosinophils may not necessarily mean anything when it comes to responsiveness to these biologics. So I don't routinely test or monitor blood eosinophils after starting on someone on Facenra. I just assume that it's going to be negligible. But it'd be nice to have a biomarker. I guess there is a biomarker. We could just put hypertonic saline and have them hawk up mucus. But like, it'd be nice to know if we're hitting the organ-specific eosinophilia somehow and titrate to effect. Clearly, is very specialized. No one really does that. Yeah, absolutely. And it sort of just brings us back to the conversation we had a few podcasts ago about possibly like 
doing these like gene expression profiles potentially in these patients and looking at, you know, markers of responsiveness. Yeah. Because we're applying the dose, but like, it'd be nice to convince ourselves we're suppressing what we want to, right? You're telling, we're giving the dose and we're still suppressing it. So we're not suppressing it. So Marin, does this mean if we have a patient who has a, requires a very high dose prednisone, they may not have a very good response to an IL-5 antagonist? That is what the others are suggesting, yes. They suggest that the odds of non-responsiveness go up with both just the presence of steroid-dependent asthma, but also it's a dose-dependent effect. And just to throw it out there, I, I think you were intimating this, maybe the concurrent upper and lower severe sinus, severe asthma patient maybe would be more amenable to the classic, you know, IL-413 to pilumab type of strategy uh, because of the indication. Correct. And I don't know how often you've seen non-responsiveness to anti-IL-5s. I've seen both non-responsiveness as well as discrepancies in the responsiveness in upper as well as lower airway symptoms in these patients where their asthma might improve, but their polyps will progress. So I generally just go with dupilumab. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I mean, we're still trying to figure out which bio. I mean, I, I reviewed needs assessments for the major organizations all the time. Which biologic, which patient, it's a continuing discussion. We're learning so much. So these are very helpful studies. Thanks for reviewing that one. So I'm going to finish out the last study in the last few minutes. This is coming out of the COFAR group. Again, so many amazing studies telling us how do we manage our food allergic patients. And this article that was published in JACI is entitled Induction of Sustained Unresponsiveness After Egg or Immunotherapy Compared to Baked Egg Therapy in Children with Egg Allergy. And so, you know, we know that egg algae is almost always outgrown, but there's going to be this time where they have to avoid egg. And we know that a large percentage of those patients can tolerate baked egg. And so, you know, a very common strategy, because we know that the risk of systemic reactions is low if they tolerate baked egg, is to do a baked egg challenge, continue that. We know if they pass the baked egg challenge, there's a positive prognostic factor, but there is some observation that may accelerate the resolution of egg allergy, you know, like some sort of uh, low-grade or immunotherapy of some sort. But as you know, there are some patients who still are persistently egg allergic, and there is some data for egg or immunotherapy that, you know, some patients have obtained remission at least six weeks after discontinuation of egg or immunotherapy. So, there's certainly more adverse reactions with oral immunotherapy. So obviously that's why baked egg is a little bit safer, but what about efficacy and how do we compare the two? So I think this is what the study was trying to answer. They recruited patients from, again, the multiple sites in the COFAR network. And basically they took patients who were baked egg tolerant and baked egg allergic. Actually, they tried to find a lot of baked egg tolerant patients, but they ended up with a lot of baked egg allergic patients. So they just kept them along as well, just to look as a third comparator group for egg or immunotherapy. But of the baked egg tolerant group, they split them into baked egg or traditional egg powder oral immunotherapy. And so really what they're curious about is if we do this for two years and do the traditional stopping of maintenance, and that eight to 10 week challenge to look for sustained unresponsiveness, 
What's the comparison? And what was the adverse uh, reactions along the way? So essentially the baked egg intervention, I think we're familiar with it. It's the Mount Sinai recipe where they put a, about a third of an egg per muffin. It's about like two grams of egg white equivalent, you know, like a third of an egg versus egg powder, which is, you know, 80% protein. So essentially, you know, they're giving about the approximate of a third of an egg is 2,500 milligrams of egg powder as the maintenance. And you just give it as like capsules or vials or, or so on. And so, you know, OIT is done the typical way where they do dose escalation and escalation visits every two weeks to get to the target dose versus baked egg, which they just tell them to eat that amount of egg every day in a baked good. So the usual, you know, biomarkers as well. And what they found was, is that, you know, they were able to get an egg allergic population of 169 people, 57 passed the baked egg challenge. So they split that in half. And then they had 112 that failed the baked egg challenge. So they just kept around for traditional egg or immunotherapy. The mean age of the subjects were on seven. And, you know, there was some dropout in the study, about 30% of the baked egg group did drop out. Speculation was, you know, it's kind of hard to get the kid to eat baked egg every day. It's hard to make the muffins if they were making the muffins. Obviously, oral immunotherapy is very regimented. You know, there's a lot of reminders to be adherent to it. But essentially, when they did that sustained unresponsiveness, what they found was after eight to 10 weeks, 11% of the baked egg group passed egg challenge versus 42%, 42% of the oral immunotherapy. Now, these are the baked egg tolerant group initially. Now, what if, what if you failed baked egg initially and you just did traditional egg OIT? So that 42% drops to 17.9%, right? They actually did three-year follow-up after that. And they found three years out that baked egg group that passed, that 23% continued to were able to eat egg. And then in terms of the people who got OIT, it went up to 73% were able to eat egg at three years post-study follow-up. Safety, you could imagine that OIT did have more mild symptoms, gastrointestinal or oral symptoms in the first year that did drop to a minority in the second year of the study. There was eight episodes that required epinephrine, so there were some pretty severe episodes as well. But overall, the study seems to suggest that Yes, you could tolerate a baked egg, and certainly that is an existing strategy we use. But if you take that baked egg tolerant person and give egg or immunotherapy, yes, you may be exposing it to more adverse reactions, but your endpoint of sustained responsiveness and accelerating the resolution of egg allergy potentially would be significantly better. And so I think Every family is different, right? They have their own risk tolerance. They have their own interest in accelerating the resolution of egg allergy. And so potentially, if this is protocolized in some way and disseminated for general use, we're going to give patient choices and parents choices about how they wish to approach their egg allergy. Because, you know, some families are risk averse and some families are very motivated. So I thought that was very interesting as potentially we're going to maybe approach the traditional baked egg tolerant patient a little bit differently. You know, this is interesting because it's just another example of higher dose immunotherapy works better than lower dose, I think. I mean, you could say that, or that's one interpretation. 
But I was surprised to see how many withdrew from the study on the baked egg therapy. You know, I, I just thought that seemed like it was high. But I was very impressed to see the sustained unresponsiveness because I don't remember seeing that in the peanut studies that high. Yeah, egg just seems to work out much better. So, you know, that's very encouraging. But yeah, I, I, I guess it's just hard to make a lot of muffins or get muffins into the kid. You know, there's a lot of reasons, I'm sure, for the dropout. I may have missed this, Jerry, but were there a lot of bad adverse effects with the oral immunotherapy? Yeah. So there was three severe episodes. There was about also eight episodes that required epinephrine total, but kind of the doses in the first year were more of the mild traditional oral or gastrointestinal mild symptoms. And it dropped to 1% in the second year. Once they went to second year two of OIT, then it was like less than 1% of doses. I just feel like when those first baked egg studies came out, like, you know, seven or eight years ago, I just feel like I was a lot more optimistic about accelerated resolution of egg allergy with baked egg than the current study would indicate, right? Those are some pretty low numbers. Yeah. Yeah. 11%. Yeah. That's not very encouraging, but we all, we want to do something, right? You can definitely tell the family that the child is eating baked egg. The child is probably going to outgrow it. That's a wonderful prognostic sign. The question is how long Right. And then this is what gets to the shared decision-making conversation, I think. Well, these are also older kids. Yes. I mean, they were, they were as young as three, but, you know, we see them even younger than that. And, you know, a lot of times with eczema and Maren, I, exa- I say exactly what you just said is we encourage them to continue the baked egg because hopefully they'll, you know, grow out of it. And, you know, that could be a game time decision. You're not committing to one treatment or the other. This is an evolution. You know, you're right. The younger kids could be different than this, again, older population they studied here. So I think overall, we're just trying to offer choices for our patients, make them give the parents informed decisions on what their options are. And like like I said, that trade-off for adverse reactions and that consistency with giving the dose every day versus maybe more of a on and off, I mean, ideally every day, but you know, on and off treatment for baked egg because missing a dose, the consequence is like zero, right? You're not worried, you know, that you're doing, having a problem if you're missing a baked egg that day. Again, it's every family is going to be different. So again, these are some really great articles. I appreciate you spending your time with us. If you do like what you hear, please rate our podcast on iTunes and we are welcoming any feedback, corrections and suggestions. Email address for that is word at acaai.org. Thank you very much for your time, everybody and enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs>